Please open your Bibles to Paul's epistle, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, God willing, we will conclude our study of that great opening sentence benediction, verses 3 through 14. And as you turn there, I'll remind you what we've already seen, what we will see again this morning, that the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, are involved in your and my salvation. That the Trinitarian God has been planning this salvation from eternity past. He has accomplished it in the present, and he has plans to conclude it, to complete it in the future. And in this plan of salvation, we are again and again and again and again blessed. We receive blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing. And therefore, the only appropriate response is that we bless him. So let's read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. There is so much here. You have lavished your grace and your blessings upon us. You have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And as we look at just some of them, help us to see them anew with eyes of faith. Let us not become bored or complacent with them, but let us marvel and wonder the grace you have given us. Let our mouths open in praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Even though verses 3 through 14 constitute one sentence, uh, there is internal divisions evident within it, sections, if you will. And that's how we've looked at it. There are four sections. We looked at the first section, verses 3 through 6, which focused primarily, and when I say primarily, there's overlap, there's bleed over. But primarily we're seeing the Father's work in eternity past of choosing and predestinating his children, his sons and daughters. Predestining and choosing them to be for him 
holy and blameless in his presence. That's what we see in verses 3 through 6. And the pattern is each section ends with a reference to Christ and then begins with a reference to Christ. So it ends with verse 6, in the beloved, verse 7, in him. Verse 10 ends in the Greek within him, literally as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in him. And then verse 11 begins, in him, that double in him, in him, setting up the, the pattern in Greek. So verse 11 sets up the next section. Verses 7 through 10, focusing on the work of the Son in redeeming us, the forgiveness that we have. It was planned in the first section. It was accomplished in the second section. And then even within the second section, looking towards God's plan, that this salvation, this redemption, this forgiveness is part of a bigger plan. God is after more than simply forgiving his children. He is also intent on uniting all things in heaven and on earth in his son. He is intent on putting and placing his son as center and supreme among all creation. And we in him. Which then turns to our final two sections. Verse 11, in him, and then beginning in him. And then verse 13, in him, you also. And and verse 11 again, even though it's not apparent in English, literally reads, so that we might be to the praise of his glory, we who are the first to hope in him. And then verse 13 beginning, in him. So it's this double in him, in him that sets up the sections. So verses three through six, the father's work in eternity past and choosing, predestining. Verses 7 through 10, the son's work in redeeming and what we have presently. So think of past, father, present tense salvation and forgiveness, the son, and then looking forward, looking to the redemption of an inheritance, we have the spirit entering into our final two sections that we'll look at this morning. Sealed by the spirit. It was hard for me to come up with a title that incorporated both things. Both of these sections list something we have. You see that in your outline. In verses 11 and 12, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. We've become heirs. And then in verse 13, in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So those are the final two blessings in this benediction we're to look at. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. We've become heirs. And in him, we have been sealed. We've been sealed in him. So let's look at that in those two points. First verses 11 through 12. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I think the Apostle Paul gives us enough information here to answer three questions, the what, the how, and the why. First, the what in him Also, and there's your blank, we have obtained an inheritance. I know that doesn't make smooth English, which is probably why the ESV translators did not include the also. But it sets up a parallelism between this and verse 13. You see how verse 13 begins, in him you also. And the idea is this is another one of those blessings linking back to verse 3. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? The Apostle Paul tells us why we ought to bless him. Why is it fitting and appropriate for blessings to come out of our mouth for the Father? Because he has blessed us in Christ Jesus. 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then, if you think of like, a, you know, you're writing an essay for high school, there's your thesis, God is to be blessed, for he has blessed us with every blessing. We start, we start bringing out, enumerating some of those blessings. So verse 4 begins, even as he chose us in him. Here's our first blessing. And so the notion here is, in him we also have obtained an inheritance. Here's another blessing. Here's another gift of God by grace to celebrate. Here's another reason for us to praise him, to bless him. And that's also how verse 13 begins. In him you also, so that the flow of thought being, God is to be blessed because he has chosen us and predestined us. God is to be blessed because in Christ we have redemption. He is to be blessed also because in him we've received an inheritance and also because we have been sealed by his spirit. That's, that's the flow of thought. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I think the notion of inheritance in biblical times is a little different than ours. Normally, for us, an inheritance would be something like money, liquidity. But the Old Testament makes a, a big deal of the land passing down from the family. So the idea here, I think, is more of this notion of a treasured possession coming down the line, something of great value. In fact, amazingly, in the Old Testament, God speaks of his people as his inheritance. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 4.20. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. And I think the picture there is of a prized, treasured thing, looked for, that eventually you receive. I think that's the idea. Um, As opposed to the notion of riches and value, it's a picture of something of value, but something looked for that eventually comes to you. Something coming down. You you think of your great-grandmother's wedding ring that you might receive. For Israel, it's the land coming down, family by family, generation by generation. Um, and we learn first the what. In him also we've obtained an inheritance. That in, This is another one of our blessings based on our union in Christ. Who, who receives this blessing, this inheritance? Those who are in Christ. Not those who are outside of Christ. This is another one of those blessings in him, which again is Paul's thesis in verse 3. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing is to be found in one place only, in Christ. And so here's a blessing for those who are in him. It's in and through our union with him. Here's another one of the blessings you and I receive when we become united to Christ by faith. In and through our union with him. Now, what is it exactly we are to inherit? What is it exactly we are to inherit? I think the book of Ephesians Make some suggestions for us. Here's what I'm going to suggest. Your blanks are, we inherit a king and a kingdom. We inherit a king and a kingdom. And and why I say that is where Paul goes with this notion of inheritance. He comes back to it three more times in Ephesians. First is in the very next paragraph. So at the end of our benediction at verse 14, just pick it up in 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the first reference of inheritance is linked with God giving to the church Christ as head. We receive Christ. We inherit him. He's our inheritance. And that links with an Old Testament theme. If you remember, as, as the tribes are portioned up their land, and God through first Moses and then through Joshua, says, okay, here are the allotments of the tribe of Judah. Here are the allotments of the tribe of Simeon. How much land did the tribe of Levi receive? None. Why? Because the Lord says in Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 2. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offering as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. And so they receive an extra portion of the Lord. They get this privilege of serving in his temple, of offering his sacrifices. That is their inheritance. That is their allotment and portion. And so we receive Christ. Our inheritance is as a king. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks, the rest of chapter one. Jump over to chapter three, where this is brought up again. Ephesians chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is what? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here the emphasis is on joint heirs, fellow heirs, Jew and Gentile in the church, in Christ, are one group of heirs. And the other time this comes up is in chapter 5, negatively. So we receive Christ, we inherit him, even as we become God's inheritance, I believe. There's also a kingdom, because the king, with the king comes a kingdom. Christ, who is ours, will rule a kingdom. And so Paul speaking negatively. Um, look at Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among the saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Why, Paul? Why is it so important that our... Words are pure. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul can picture Christ as the inheritance being given to the church in his exalted state. And with him, there's a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and God that we have an inheritance in. This is part of the reason why these blessings are spiritual. Primarily, you inherit, I inherit Christ. He is ours, we are his. And we look to a kingdom where we will reign with him. And that, I think, is what Paul has in view when he speaks of this inheritance. We inherit a king and a kingdom, a king and a kingdom. This notion of inheritance is something that's developed radically throughout the rest of the New Testament. We don't have time to look at it now, but um, perhaps in a future ABF we will. This is, I, was, I was surprised at how big of a theme this is, that we are heirs, that we will inherit something in Christ. Okay, so that's the what. Well, the what is, in him also we've obtained an inheritance. Okay, How? How did we come to receive this inheritance? Having been predestined for adoption. Now, he doesn't name sonship here, but the reason he doesn't have to name sonship here is by bringing up predestination. He's developing his thought from just a few verses earlier. And what did he say in verse 5? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. So he's assuming, we remember what he just said. And so here he says, having been, so how do we have this inheritance? Having been predestined to the purpose of him, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. And so the logic, I think, is this. Who receive inheritance? Who are heirs? Sons and daughters, household members are heirs. Yes? And so by virtue of being brought into God's household and family, by virtue of being adopted as his sons and daughters, guess what? We become heirs of God. That's that's the rationale. We inherit as sons and daughters. Keep your your finger here, but turn over to Romans chapter 8, where Paul links these ideas together clearly. I think this is what he has in mind pretty clearly. Romans chapter 8, where he'll link... The spirit and the seal and adoption and inheriting together. Romans eight fifteen. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children with God. And if children, then heirs. See, our, 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 our ability to be heirs is qualified on our identity as sons and daughters, as children. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, providing we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Stay here, because there's one other passage I want to look at in Romans 8 in just a moment. So, Our inheritance is built upon this predestination for sonship. So God has determined in eternity past that we will be his sons and daughters. And therefore, as his sons and daughters, part of what he predetermined in the past was that as sons and daughters, we would inherit him and his kingdom. That's that's the rationale. This is why Christ is to be blessed, why God is to be blessed. 
We inherit as sons and daughters. And then in Ephesians, but stay here in Romans 8, in Ephesians, he, he gives us some more qualifiers of the how. It was done through predestination, but it was also done according to his wise plan. Here's your blank. This inheritance is sure because he is sovereign. It is sure because he is sovereign. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay? And while you're in Romans 8, I want you to see that same logic. Paul in Romans 8 declares these wonderful things about us, and he anticipates the question, that sounds great, but with what certainty can we have that God will accomplish these things? And he says this in Romans 8, 28. I'm sure many of you have memorized this verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see how Paul links these thoughts together there as he does here, back in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Paul tells us we've received this inheritance, but he's going to say in our next section, we haven't fully received it. We've got a down payment, he's going to tell us. And so he wants us to know two things here. It's certain, and it's not arbitrary. Earlier, he told us he predestined us for adoption in verse 5, according to his good pleasure, the purpose of his will. Literally, his good pleasure. It pleased him. He did it joyfully. He, He predestined us gladly. And there the emphasis is in the pleasure of the Father. He was not constrained. He did not do it begrudgingly. His gifts of grace are liberal and abundant, overflowing. Here the emphasis is upon his plan. His plan. In fact, one commentator writes this. Paul builds to a crescendo the idea that God's actions in redemptive history are not haphazard, whimsical, or arbitrary but are the execution of his purpose in Christ, which he fixed by his own counsel. Three terms for God's will are used here in verse 11 to show that God's own will and that of none other directs his actions. As Nebuchadnezzar confesses in Daniel 4, he does according to his will among the hosts of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? End quote. This adoption, this predestination for an inheritance is certain because he is sovereign. It is sure because he is sovereign. And notice the sweeping statements Paul makes here. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. You and I have all known people who make plans, well-intentioned plans, even wise plans, but they're thwarted. Vacations that have to be canceled. Plans that have been made that the weather stops, right? And so it's one thing to say God has a plan. He has a wise plan. Notice the stacking up of terms there. His purpose, his counsel, his will. This is a wise plan. This isn't just something he did on the spur of the moment. 
but it's certain because not only is there a plan, there is a sovereign behind the plan. And so if you say, okay, God plans to do this, but maybe, maybe the devil's going to get in the way. Maybe a monkey wrench is going to be thrown in by the devil, or, or maybe man's free will is going to thwart God's plan. And, and Paul says, uh-uh, this plan is made by the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And because God is in control of all things, his plans are certain, his purposes are sure. And that makes a glorious picture because God's purpose here is in making sons and daughters, making them holy and blameless, giving them an inheritance, redeeming them in Christ. And what we're seeing here, just like in Romans 8, is all things are working to that end. Let's let's start plugging some all things in. The movement of the stars in the heavens, part of all things, I think, I, when I first became a Christian, I had a, a notebook, and on the back, my friend and I, we wrote all things. You know, give thanks and all things. Let's check and see if it's on the list. You know, should we give thanks for this? Yep. Okay, well, you could do the same thing. Um, all things are working together. All things are working together after God's plan, and God's plan is to make us heirs, to predestine us. The movement of the stars in heaven are working together for your and my salvation. Every flake of snow in a blizzard is being worked by a sovereign God in concert with his wise and good plan to make redeemed and holy sons and daughters. And even the things we don't understand, tsunamis and wars and disease, are all part of God's wise and good sovereign plan and all work together in concert to achieve his good purposes. It is staggering what Paul is saying. God works everything. He is working everything according to the counsel of his will. And the counsel of his will set forth here is to make sons and daughters who receive an inheritance. And everything around you and everything in human history in the past and everything in human history to come is working in perfect concert for that purpose without any deviation, without any chance of it not coming to pass. Blessed be God indeed. Why? Why is God doing this? And you get the so that, right? Verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why? Well, he gives a precondition. Having come to hope in Christ. I want to highlight that here because in this big sentence, we saw in our first week how much is done to us. He chose us. He blessed us. He gave us an inheritance. He sealed us. He redeemed us, he forgave us, he loved us. Is there anything we do in this passage? There are three things we do in this passage. We hope, we hear, and we believe. And so here, having come to hope in Christ, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We define these blessings as belonging to those who are in Christ. And now we get some idea of who are those who are in Christ. If all these blessings are in Christ, then I want to be in Christ. Well, another way of defining the people who receive these blessings are those here who hope in Christ. So what we learn is those who are in Christ are those who have come to hope in Christ. And the Greek form of the verb here is strong. The emphasis here is a past action with present consequence. Paul's saying that that coming to hope of Christ in the past has altered and affected who he is today. 
This isn't hope like I hope it's sunny, hope I win the lottery. This is a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor. This is a hope that changes a man, that changes a woman. Hope in Christ is no trivial thing. It is visceral. It is strong. Paul's saying we have come to and we remain in the state of having hoped in Christ. And God has a purpose for those people. That we might be to the praise of his glory. The blank here is we might exist to the praise of his glory. Again, I'm trying to draw the emphasis of the verb out. To be. God wants us holy and blameless. He wants us as sons and daughters. He wants us to receive an inheritance. He wants us in fellowship with him. And he wants us to exist, to be, for his praise of his glory. He wants us to be for the praise of his glory. This, of course, links back to verse 6, his purpose there, to the praise of his glorious grace. God intends to exalt his son. He intends to unify all things in his son. He intends to have us before him in love, holy and blameless, adopted sons, adopted daughters, heirs, and he intends to set forth for himself praise. And what we see in this is we get the blessing and he gets the glory and praise. Again and again, we get the blessing. We get the grace. We get the forgiveness. We get the salvation. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. We have become heirs with him. Okay, quickly. Our final section, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, I want to answer three questions. What initiated this? What actually has been done? And why has it been done? So let's just deal with these quickly. What initiated this? Because that's the way the flow of this works. In him, and then he gives a qualifier. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed. So in him, you were sealed. But he begins by telling this qualifier. So what initiated this? That's my first look. And again, here are the other two things we have done. You have heard the word of truth, And you believed in Christ. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. Before we even get to that, notice one other thing. The shift in pronouns. Up until verse 13, the pronouns that refer to people have been first person, plural. We and us, right? So in verse 3, he blessed us. He chose us. In verse 4, but all of a sudden, the us's turn to second person pronouns, you. Why does Paul here shift from speaking of a big corporate we, us, to you? Commentators have two suggestions. One is that Paul is emphasizing Jew and Gentile. So the we, especially the we who have become the first to hope in Christ, would refer to the first generation Jewish church. The first Christians were Jews the book of Acts. It's possible, and I think a lot of interpreters like that because of the emphasis that's coming in Ephesians. Certainly in chapter 2, that becomes a big deal. The dividing wall is taken down. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcised nor uncircumcised. However, it it seems a little stretched. It's possible. That could be what he's doing here. I I think there's there's a more straightforward answer, and that is this. Paul wants to make it perfectly clear to the church at Ephesus who are not that first generation church. They are not there in 
in, in, in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. They were not there at Pentecost. They have the exact same inheritance. You and I, 2,000 years later, have the exact same share, portion, and inheritance and benefits as Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the first-generation church. Regardless of whether the distinction, the emphasis is Jew-Gentile or first round hearers, second round hearers. The emphasis is the same. We share in the same salvation. We share in the same blessings. We have the same seal. We have the same sonship. And what did we do? We have come to hope in him here. We heard the word of truth. It's one of the reasons why this church, we focus so much on the preaching of God's word and understanding it. Because we understand the word of God Not my opinion, not your opinion, not fun YouTube clips, but the word of God is the power for salvation. The word of God is what is required for men and women to be saved. According to James 1.18, the word of God is the instrument the Holy Spirit used to birth you in the new birth. Listen to this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He birthed us. He brought us forth... By the word of truth. But you need to hear it. And hearing it means listen to it, paying heed to it. So we've come to hope in him. We've come to hope in him because we paid heed, we listened, we heard the word of truth, which he then defines again as the gospel or the good news of your salvation. So all of the scripture is the word of truth in God's word. But in particular, he's talking about those parts of scripture that speak of the salvation in Christ Jesus. We need to hear those things. That's why we spent four and a half years going through the Gospel of Luke with some pauses. It's why we've spent four weeks, five weeks now in Ephesians, and we're getting through the second sentence. Because the word of truth is the means of salvation. It is the necessary element. You have to believe. That's the next thing right here. We're going to look at You have to believe. But there is no faith in what you happen to think. And that's an important distinction because today people just want to talk about having faith in whatever they think about. I believe in God. I like to think of God this way. I like to think of God that way. I like to believe God this. No, there's a word from God and then we respond by hearing that word and believing. The content is, is fixed. The question is, will we submit our minds to it? Will we embrace it with our wills? We hear it and we believe it. You believed in Christ. You believe in Christ. And again, that's the other thing we do, we must do. Even in a passage where election and predestination, God's choice before the foundation of the world is emphasized, God's sovereignty, he's in control of all things, we are acted upon again and again and again and again and again. But in concert with that and with no friction or conflict, you and I must hear, we must hope, We must believe. Make no mistake about that. No one can do that for you. No one can hear the word for you. No one can hope in Christ for you. No one can believe for you. You must do it. You must hear. You must hope. You must believe. And all the blessings in Christ are to those who hear, who hope, and who believe in the Son. And even as in a mystery, those who hear and hope and believe are those God predestined. You still have to do it. I still have to do it. We still plead with men, be reconciled with God. 
Would you hear his word? Would you hope in him? Would you trust in the son? What initiated this? Us hearing and believing in Christ. Okay, so what has been done to those who hear and believe? We were sealed. In him also you were sealed. There's the blank for also, which does show up in the SV. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. Which is simply highlighting again, this is another one of the blessings. What Paul's stacking up is, not only did God choose you, not only did God predestine you, for sonship. Not only did he give you a redemption and forgiveness of sins, not only are we caught up in a cosmic plan as the body of Christ to participate in Christ being made the center and the, the unifying point and the summing up of all things in him. Not only that, but we've also not only also received an inheritance and now also we've received the spirit as a seal. That, that's Paul's mode of thought. This is how he's laying out all the blessings that are in Christ. What has been done in him also you were sealed. Turn over to chapter 4. Paul Brink picks this theme up again. Many of the themes in this opening benediction and sentence set up what's to come in the book, which enables me to move somewhat quickly. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 30. We have this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we are sealed by the Spirit. In him you also were sealed. And the notion of a seal, I think, has two pictures. One is ownership. A seal let's say a brand on a horse, indicates ownership and possession. And we know that in Paul's day, uh, merchants would come and they'd put their seal on things they'd send their servants to pick up later. They'd walk through the warehouse and they'd, they'd put their stamp and seal on something. That's how that term is used in John 6. The father has put his seal on the son. The father has authenticated and said, mine, he's my son. That's how that term's used in John 6. The other purpose of a seal is what he's going to say next, this guarantee In that sense, an engagement ring is a seal, right? It's a deposit. It's, it's, it's again, a token of this one is mine. I've made promises to this one. But it also serves as some sort of promissory deposit and guarantee of what's to come. In him, you also, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We absolutely don't have time to follow that trail, but I'd encourage you to to look up those passages, especially Ezekiel 36, where you can see God's promise hundreds of years before this was written, that he would give his people a new heart. He would give them his spirit. And the promise is finally fulfilled in the new covenant. The Holy Spirit seals us. The Holy Spirit marks us as God's sons and daughters. In fact, what we saw in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit's the very reason we're able to cry out, Father, God, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Why has this been done? Why has this been done, he says? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Because there's a tension. Verse 11 says, we have, present tense, we have obtained, we are having an inheritance. And here in verse 14, we're talking about until we have it. So do you have your inheritance or will you have your inheritance? Yes. 
It's even as he said redemption, right? Here, we have been redeemed. And then in Ephesians 4.30, we've been sealed for the day of redemption. Are you redeemed or will you be redeemed? Yes. We have our inheritance in that we have the deposit. You could almost, almost, you could. One of the glosses I looked up for this term, uh, guarantee, is a first payment or down payment. And that's where I think the notion of an engagement ring is perfect. What is an engagement? Why, why do people spend, what's the idea behind spending lots of money on an engagement ring? I think today people spend way too much. But what's the purpose of giving something of value? Why wouldn't a simple brass band do? Because there's a notion for the woman who is now not considering any other suitors. It's not considering any other um, would-be husbands. And especially in the biblical times where, the husband, where this man would go away and prepare a place and come back. Well, how do we know he's not going to run off? How do we know he's not going to change his mind? Well, you have this thing of value as a guarantee, as a deposit. I will keep my word. Here's my, here's, here's my good faith proof of my intention to keep my word. God has given us his spirit. Here's the blank. His indwelling presence serves as a guarantee. His indwelling presence serves as a guarantee. It's meant to assure us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit's presence is the proof. If you've ever wondered, how can I know that God won't toss me out? How can I promise that God will complete what he began? How can I know he'll keep his promise? How can I have comp? You have his spirit. You have the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, in you. And the spirit serves as that guarantee and that seal that he will finish what he began. He will give us the rest of our inheritance. He will not leave us, but he will finish what he started. And that's the idea, which brings us to the final point. And that guarantee, that assurance is meant then to enable us that we might confidently praise his glory. Rather than shrinking back, maybe, maybe not, the spirit is meant to give us great confidence because these blessings are in heavenly places. They're not on earth. The prosperity teachers tell you that the blessings are here and now. Wealth and health and children and jobs. and There's no promise of those things. Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Jesus talks about those who give up, forsake, surrender. Husbands and wives and sons and daughters and kingdoms and homes for his sake. Jesus talks about picking up his cross. No, there is no promise of financial earthly blessing in this life. God is gracious, and for many of us, there is some measure of blessing, but there is no promise. And don't mistake those as the things God's put out for you. The things God has put out for you are in a kingdom to come. But the Spirit serves as that guarantee. The Spirit serves as that earnest, that deposit, that we might never doubt, that we might never waffle in unbelief. I'd like to call the worship team up. We are going to praise the glory of his grace. We must. Um, and I want you to encourage you to, to read and reread this section and consider all the things God has done for you. He has chosen you and me in eternity past. He has determined to make us sons and daughters. He has adopted us. He has sent his son to die for us so that through his blood, we would have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are playing a role in a cosmic, universal plan for the Son to sum up all things in himself to his glory. We have received an inheritance. He has given us his spirit. He has put his seal upon us. Let us bless him. Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ.